following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! My name is Matt Perez, and my name is Satchel Drakes, and this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Satchel. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Pretty good, man. How about you? Doing all right. Chilling out. You know, making decisions day by day. Oh, yeah? Ah? Oh, yeah? Oh, look at that. I, yo, well, look at that. I have a question for you. Sure. Are you good at making decisions in games? Am I good at it? Um, you know what? I'm going to say that I am good at it. Oh, really? I started off not very good at it, um, but I've, I've, I've taken a particular ownership over time in making decisions. What changed? I think maybe part of it, figuring out what I would do in a situation, because oftentimes decisions... Decisions in games are of situations that don't actually impact my life. So you kind of have to, in a way, create a persona for yourself in game. Um, I like to have one that's sort of consistent, that I feel aligns with my actual kind of value system if I, you know, had to execute one. And then I run with it. But I think prior to then, I always kind of like waved between maybe wanting to do something like really crazy just to see what would happen or um, not being sure, like, what I would be faced with if I, I don't know, I guess being ruled by fear in a kind of way. Mm-hmm. Does that I think make sense? It, yeah. I think I get too much in my own head. I think your strategy is way better where you kind of, not detach, but you definitely are, okay, I'm not going to, like, make this decision like it's the life or death kind of thing. Or, like, for me as a person, like, I can create this persona that's probably the best way to go because i get super bogged down with uh certain decisions but it kind of depends on the game too like i think uh do you make decisions differently in the walking dead versus like mass effect or bioshock Ooh, because they're kind of different i'm 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 gonna go with i'm gonna go with no no Um, okay I, I try to hold to the same value system. I see what you're saying because, like, these – those games are very different. Um, for Walking Dead, it it leans on moral stuff. But I'll, I'll say – so with Walking Dead, I tend to err towards the traditional kind of righteous role. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it gets tested often. And the way that translates to something like Bioshock is I saved all the sisters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like – You know, anything that aligns with kind of like – a hero, as long as it makes sense, I'll go for it. Oh, yeah. I feel that way, too. I think the reason I see Mass Effect and something like Life is Strange or The Walking Dead a little bit different is a lot of times it's a, it's a more about relationships than, like, a life or death sort of thing. Because I know, like, in The Walking Dead, like, I think the first episode, you have to decide what character to save. And the one is immensely more interesting than the other. 
And I'm like, okay, this is an easy decision. But like the second episode, <laughs> uh, I think there is, I mean, the game's old enough where this isn't really a spoiler, but um, yeah. someone has a heart attack and there's two sides. So one wants to try to resuscitate the person suffering the heart attack and the other person wants to smash their head in, you know? And it's like, mm. what decision do you make? Like, and the person that wants to kill this guy is also like a longtime companion of yours who like you've built trust with. So even though like once you go through the entire game and you see like how certain decisions are kind of hard coded, I remember like in the moment it really messed me up and I didn't know which side to take. And I ended up making kind of like cowardly, but smart decision where I just let the time run out and I actually didn't make a decision and um, the action, like, I just divorced myself from the action, and uh, it made me feel like, oh, you know what? I'm not actually on anyone's bad side right now. Like, if I had made a decision, yeah. <laughs> even if it was, like, the most, like, virtuous so one. So you're, like, the people pleaser? Yeah. I think that's that's kind of, like, a sick way of thinking about it. But, yeah, it totally is me just going, like, no, I'm going to not get in this argument. And even though it makes me look spineless, no one's actually going to be mad at me for this. So I think th- yeah. I, I like that idea of uh, you're making decisions based on the relationships rather than, oh, should I cut off my arm or not? Which I totally would if I if got bit by a zombie, you know? Yeah. No, I, I understand. I think the way that I go into it, and maybe this is at a higher fidelity than we can expect out of games, but in some cases I don't think so. The way I go in is very similar to yours, only I'm less apologetic about being a people pleaser because I feel like in many ways socially – strategically, if I can be as socialized as possible with the immediate group around me, I can earn the right to make the decisions that I feel is truly best later on. So I almost see it as an earn your stripes kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, which can be applied to the workplace, to clubs, to just about anything, you know? Um, that's sort of been my situation. But I totally relate. I totally understand what you're saying when you talk about how a lot of a lot of Telltale games, modern games, and also really sort of like the golden age of television, they play into this, well, as it turns out, everybody is a corner boy. Everybody is humanized. Like, everyone's trying to make ends meet, and they clash in their desire to want the best for themselves and the people around them. So who's really good? Who's really bad? And I guess in those situations, I, like, have to look at... This is getting a bit uh, meta, but I have to look at the system in place, right? And who's it? Who is it? And try to figure out who it's favoring. To your point about Walking Dead, um, I saved the dude, <laughs> which I don't think you said obvious. Which I just had to. I just have to lightly push back. I don't think it's obvious for me. I saw him as a bit of an ally, um, but that's what makes it interesting, right? Mm. Like, like there's. Um, it, there there really is a lot that kind of goes into a decision. I guess a lot of it can just come down to, like, values. And taking a moment to thank our supporters, Veridesk, Amica Insurance, and Rocket Mortgage. More about these companies later in the show. See, in my mind, I thought with something like Mass Effect or something where it gives you, like, a point. If you, like, basically, you kind of want to go in either the very good direction or a very bad direction. Because combat and, and things of that nature are linked to uh, those decisions. So you just want to boost yeah. your stats. Like you have that strategic element into it. But 
I mean, this might be a little bit too like farcical or something, but I, I guess like in real life, there are those aspects too that you have to keep in mind of like, oh, am I this going to look good for me and like advanced something I want to be advanced, even though it might not be the best decision. So I, I can see how that can play out too, where the, there, there is worthwhile aspect of that. Yeah. Because it's always good to have kind of people. I mean, you figure in these games are high stakes, like life or death. It's nice later on. The algorithms are sophisticated enough, like in most stories, that like you can do quote the right thing around the people who are around you, and then towards end game when decisions start weighing more, swerve away and maintain some allies, maintain some of the things that you've earned over time. Mm. Um, Telltale is a little different. Because uh, you accrue less, it's way more overtly narrative driven. Mm-hmm. Um, like Batman, for example, it's a bit more complicated. Like you're kind of faced with siding with the law, which is entangled with a mafia equivalent, or journalism, which hurts your standing as the son of legacy, um, but is also good for the little guy. You know, mm-hmm. and in situations like that, it became really easy for me to side with journalism because I'm looking at the system, like the systems and what they're rewarding. Mm-hmm. And for me, the true good is in that context like that is the smaller voice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even though you might get the praise of uh, people on the side of the authorities, if the authorities you know are broken, then it might not mean as much. Yeah. I definitely think about that too. Well, what about um, consequences of your actions? I think that's like a big thing that is often overlooked with a lot of these types of games where uh, oftentimes the consequence of your choice is so immediate that, I mean, you can predict where it's going to go. So you can totally look at the system and go like, oh, this is like the good choice. But I feel like games like The Witcher... There's definitely aspects of it in Life is Strange where you make that decision and you actually don't know exactly how it's going to manifest itself. And it sometimes throws you for a loop. Like, it'll have unintended consequences. And I feel like that's... I personally feel always like if they can delay a consequence as long as possible, that's probably what you should do. Because then it really muddies the water for you when you're trying to make these decisions. I completely agree. Completely. Yeah. Um, it's cool that you mentioned Life is Strange because that that's a title that I feel does do a, a, a memorable a memorable job at like prolonging things and you not really knowing how your decisions are going to impact things later. Mm-hmm. Um, for that, I mean, and actually, what's interesting now is I've gotten to the point where I expect so much out of games that uh, obviously spoiled by really great ideas. I expect so much that sometimes I want to not do things. I want to opt out of things. So I'll like idle myself to see if I can get out of situations. Um, but I can't like you start, you start to see like the seams of, of the story, you know? Mm-hmm. I definitely, yeah, I know. Um, like I always felt um, season one of the walking dead was the strongest thing that telltale ever did because I think in a lot of the other ones, uh, you start to imagine too much. Like you start thinking like, oh, this can go really far. Or what I'm trying to say, like to make those sort of stories work, there needs to be a bit of like magic on, or like, you know, a bit of fibbing on the developer side where 
you, you think like anything is possible, but you know, obviously not everything is possible. Um, and there's like a balancing act of making sure you keep that veil over the player's eyes of like not seeing those seams or not seeing those strings. And I think definitely the first season of the walking dead managed to do it. Life is strange. Does it for me. I feel like, uh, the wolf among us, I really enjoyed, but I kind of like you, you start to see the strings on that pretty early on where I'm like, okay, I can see like these decisions are, are going a certain way. I don't know. How do you feel that way too? Really? I thought that, that I thought that it had some of the most unpredictable twists. Like so many different checkpoints in that story. I wasn't sure whose side I was on. Mm. Oh, I definitely. Yeah. Okay. There's that aspect. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I I feel like uh, near the end, I was like, oh, well, I guess the other aspect is like, do your choices matter? And like a lot of times that doesn't matter. I think it's a a more like how you view the story. And I think maybe that's where it, it failed for me, where. I eventually saw, like, oh, it's going kind of, like, in a one-direction kind of sort of way, and uh, I'm just on, on, you know, on the ride right now. Yeah. Uh, well, to go back to what you were saying earlier, I feel – I agree, where I feel like I care less about whether I'm making the right decision or not. What I care more about lately is if the decision is mine or not. So – if somebody – if a game decides to it's, – it's actually gotten to the point where – and maybe it's gotten to the point of sophistication and like cleverness where uh, games will prolong the consequence so long that it's futile to even try to telegraph like what your decisions are going to be. So you don't strategize in the way that you would strategize as if there were a win state mm-hmm. as much as you throw the win state and the concept of a win state and – Whatever quantified kind of point system you have in your head that you traditionally try to project on a game, you throw it out the window, and instead you say, these decisions are my decisions, and I'm going to deal with whatever consequences there are. Very much like real life. Like, And so in like when that comes to mind, I'm really not particularly worried as much. I'm not that anxious. Like, Versus when I started out, it's kind of like, oh, Seth is going to remember that? Great. He should remember it. That's how I feel. <laughs> you know, have you had he a similar remember. experience? Like, <laughs> no, I, I definitely get that with, uh, I keep going back to, it. I really like life is strange. Um, uh, but for that, like a lot of it just comes down to like how you treat someone else and then they'll go and, and live their own life and make decisions for themselves. Like you're not like, you're definitely like an influence on people and like, you know, they react to like your decisions, but a lot of times it's more, you know, you're, you're just a person in their life and you're not directly affecting them. It's more like they're going to go off and do their own thing. And that's where I feel like I really enjoy that where it feels. That's fair. Well, you see, life is strange. I almost, I almost don't want to count. It's obviously valid. I almost don't want to count it. Cause it's noncommittal. The, Why, it's a noncommittal rely. premise. Because you can change it, you can change whatever decision you have. That's true, but like, you the also consequence, see, you know, like. Sorry, say that again. I mean, you see, like how you react, like you see the consequence of like how they react, but then well, I feel like, yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah. And then, like, oftentimes, your character Max will talk in her head, like, "I don't know if I should have made that decision," because and and it implies like something will happen after. Uh, yeah. 
And even yeah. like subtle things, like maybe you rearrange something in someone's room, you get that little little um like motif that's like uh this this might have some type of effect later on down the road and it kind of puts a little paranoia in your head yeah yeah i guess basically it's less immediate than you like ah should i shoot this person or not kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) but like also to your point do you think you ever make bad decisions in these types of games do i think i make bad decisions I think well, that's what I'm getting at. I I think there was a point in time where I did, and it would linger with me. But these days, I feel like no, I just make my decision. Okay, and you could just like live with it, yeah, sort of thing, right? And and if I had and it's be- if I had like because the worst case scenario is oh no, actually I wouldn't that the decision isn't like uh, it isn't me because I didn't have this piece of information. But I mean, it's the story's job to reveal whatever information they do. So if I lost it, I lost it because I was ignorant. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it's funny because uh, – Maybe I'm too zen about all this. What was that? I said maybe I'm too zen about all this. I don't know. Like I, that's a good way of looking at it because I'm such a perfectionist that like – we've talked about before like with something like a stealth game. I just want to be perfect. I, I don't want anything to go wrong. Um, and definitely in like a Mass Effect – it's more so like you love the win state. You want a win state. Yeah, I just want one. to be perfect. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> definitely, like I remember times playing Mass Effect where I'm just like, "Is this like gonna make a perfect ending or no? Like I don't want to screw up my like I want to be like slightly gray. I want to be perfect. I want to be like literally Jesus here." And um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, that is the funniest thing you've said on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, and like, I definitely in like something like Life is Strange, I I do enjoy now where I get to make a bad decision and it just comes up later, and I'm like, oh, I can't go back. I think it happens in The Witcher. Like, I think that was probably one of the um, earlier games that did that, where they're just not going to reveal to you what the bad decision is. It's just like you live with it for a while, and hours down the line, it'll be like, well, here's the results, and you could it could have been like the worst decision, and it's just like. Wow, I guess I'll live with that, you know, because you're not going to yeah, go back yeah. hours and hours of that game, you know. Um, I guess like another one more question is like, I love that in Life is Strange and Walking Dead that or any Telltale game they crowdsource your decisions and show the entire player base like what percentage picked a certain decision. Were you ever like surprised by how players reacted to a certain choice they had to make? Sometimes, yeah. I, I wish I could come up with examples. Uh, it's usually small, like minor decisions that it's like, oh, I didn't think most people like felt that was obvious. Like for me, but most of the time it's just me. Like, yep, I'm weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I well, I love when it's like a total split, and then, like I think the the ending of Life is Strange was kind of a split, and that surprised me because I was like. Oh, there's a there's a good ending here, you guys. <laughs> like, I mean, I actually like there actually is a better. Like, it seems like the developers focused on one ending more than the other, so it does feel like there's a better ending. But uh, yeah. no, like I I love. I think it's they're most successful. I think the developer when it is split down the middle. But I am like sometimes surprised, like how often people are just kind of nice. I I think yeah. I don't know if that's just people wanting a better win state or it's just a matter of you know 
more often than not, people are, are kind of cool, maybe. <laughs> at least in, in, a, in a video game, at least. I'd like to think so. I feel like the I feel like this community has a decent amount of trolls who would just troll and lock it in and save the file and not turn back. <laughs> so I do think that that part at least is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, getting a bit of a admittedly hazy understanding of where at least people who play video games values are. <laughs> mm-hmm. So with that. You know, crowdsourcing data within a game uh, based on player decisions. Wanted to see how that translates to real life. So we talked to Dr. Casper Hardeveld. He's an assistant professor of game design at Northeastern University. So uh, let's talk to him. Let's do it. But first, a quick break. And we'll be right back after this quick break. This year, the office cubicle turns 50 years old. It hails from an age when work was done on typewriters and smoking at your desk was the norm. Today, employees are expecting more from their workspace. They want flexible and active spaces where they can collaborate and feel energized. Veradesk Active Workspace Solutions make it easy to encourage more movement to any workday. Being more active at work, like standing more and sitting less, can help improve your health, boost energy, and increase productivity. Veradesk has a variety of desk solutions that replace traditional office setups, require little to no assembly, and are ready to use in minutes. Plus, Veradesk products are made from commercial-grade materials meant to last a lifetime. They're easy to move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. You can try Veradesk risk-free for 30 days with free shipping and free returns if you're not satisfied. See it for yourself at veridesk.com. That's V-A-R-I-Desk.com. And this podcast is brought to you by Amica Auto Home and Life Insurance. When you call Amica, you can expect a different experience because Amica is all about customer service that goes above and beyond the ordinary. You always get the help you need when you call Amica. Visit meetamica.com slash Forbes today. So with us right now is Dr. Casper Hardeveld. He's an assistant professor of game design at Northeastern University. Uh, thanks for joining us, Casper. Yeah, thank you. Thanks uh, for inviting me for this conversation. Absolutely. So uh, could you uh, just uh, explain your work to us? Uh, you create gaming experiences involving decision-making to teach about issues in society? Yeah, correct. Uh, yeah, so I, I kind of see games, because games are eventually about decision-making. Uh, this is what makes games very much different than any other kind of media, if you're thinking about books or uh, watching a movie. Uh, in games, uh, you as a player are empowered to do things. And what are you doing? Well, you're making decisions. And so uh, with that in mind, if you are interested in observing and thinking about how people make decisions, then games become sort of this natural environment uh, because that's what players do all the time. Uh, and with regards to, to society, um, this is where uh, you know I've been trying to apply games to for a couple of different reasons. I am mostly interested in uh, the domains of resilience and sustainability, and each has a different reason for it, for why I'm interested in it. Uh, with regards to resilience, um, it's really difficult to study disasters and problematic situations in reality. We can't really simulate them, uh, nor is it really ethical to do anything like that. And games provide this uh, virtual environment where you could expose people to all kinds of disastrous situations and see how they respond to that. Uh, and then with regards to sustainability, that's mostly something that has to do with the future. And again, you know, we can't really... Uh, have the future here in front of us in reality 
And in games, you could uh, simulate that and see how people could respond in all kinds of what-if scenarios. Um, so for those reasons, I, I see games as a really good platform to, uh, uh, to study what people do. Yeah. Well, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, can you uh, talk about one of those uh, specific examples? Uh, I, I think you have a game about urbanization and climate change, not policy de- decisions made by the player impact the environment. Yeah, correct. So, so one of the things that we're thinking about, or what I've been working on, is uh, on urban heat islands. So, in, in that case, uh, how could you change the, the the infrastructure of a city to, uh, and what kind of policy decisions do you need to make in order to reduce the problem of urban heat islands? So, you have to think about, you know, where are parks going to be? Uh, where are going? Where is going to be um, industry located? Uh, and as you're planning your city, there's all kind of trade-offs that you need to make in terms of uh, economy, but then also in terms of sustainability. And um, with the game environment, you're providing policymakers essentially tools uh, to explore all kind of different futures. Mm-hmm. So, like uh, for these um, these experiences, do you generally make them like as a uh, as a means to show consequences to ac- actions or? Uh, are you also interested in just creating an experiment and seeing the results uh, that the player is providing? Uh, I, I'm interested in both, um, and uh, eventually, all my work is is necessary. All my work eventually it would be nice to have it to uh, be an impact on the real world. Uh, but the way I kind of see it is, it goes in a couple of uh, steps. So step one is actually understanding what people do. So that's essentially observing, putting people into environments, see what people are doing. Then the second step is uh, assessing what people are doing. So can we uh, assess their performance? Or because at some point we have a model of how people are behaving, and then we want to assess that. And then the third step is to uh, start training people to think about interventions. Because if we know how, uh, what people are doing in these environments and we have an idea of how it could be better, uh, then we can start thinking about how could we make sure that people are uh, improving their performance. So, for instance, uh, a concrete example is um, maybe we could think of decision aids or some type of information that we can provide. Uh, so we could include that into the game and, and see if uh, people's performance is, uh, are, is improving. Okay. So, yeah, it's the type of data that you collect is like – I know we talked about um, – uh, games from Telltale, where at the end they have like a percentage of like what decisions were made, and you're going back and seeing how those change as players are um, continuing to play. Yeah, correct. And actually, uh, you're, you're bringing up the Telltale, and, uh, and uh, I, I oftentimes use that as an example too, because um, you know a lot of people think you know these are entertainment games and whatnot, uh, and they are. Uh, but uh, for that particular example, because at the end of the game you see the percentages, and then as a player you start comparing yourself to to others. So as as it were, the the game uh, forces you to meta reflect about who you are as a person, of what kind of ethical decisions you're making, uh, and maybe not everybody will think that deeply about themselves as they play these games, but it, it does have the potential to do that. Um, but that is maybe a side story. But I, I think it's important to point out that uh, this kind of data is also useful for, for plays themselves. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I mean, it kind of reminds me, 
you know, it, it just being me in my bedroom playing a Telltale game by myself and looking at the results, I'm kind of creating this normative narrative of what the right person would do or like mm -hmm. what the right voice would sound like in this like fictional story based on what I feel the majority of people are doing. Like it's such a like proof for social animals kind of situation. Um, what I'm kind of curious to know is given that in these sort of games, in these simulations, we tend to have um, – we tend to have a, a projected version of ourselves. There's, there's kind of like this implicit invitation to role play yeah. uh, or in other situations, maybe we don't have like the same uh, sociological or systemic pressures that might like push us into making particular decisions and we operate off of an ideal instead. I'm curious to know with these things in mind, uh, what kind of things do you have to be wary of? What kind of things do you have to keep in mind before you make a statement about uh, general human behaviors in the real world uh, based on simulations? Yeah, this is a recurring problem and uh, it, it's 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 funny that you bring this up. So I, I actually have created uh, a platform which is called Study Crafter, and uh, Study Crafter is a platform where people can uh, participate and create uh, gamified research projects. And uh, this this platform um, and it yeah, provides some sort of game engine if you like that specifically supports the ability to create uh, you know, research projects where you can study decision making. And I've implemented this in my classroom where students were asked to create an, a, a gamified experiment. And uh, the first thing that students were doing was, well, how does this generalize to, to reality? And if I have an avatar, uh, who's to say that I respond uh, as my avatar? And uh, really interesting is that one of uh, a group of my students, they started to create an experiment where they were actually exploring this idea. Uh, and others have published about this too. And, and one of those things is, is called the mimesis effect is that the idea is that you would uh, respond according to the character you're controlling. And so my students created an experiment where uh, you're actually, uh, you're uh, put in uh, either one condition. So either you're in a story where you're a decent, a decent person, uh, so you have um, a wife and a job and everything is going well, uh, but um, your wife is very sick and uh, you just lost... Um, your company or something like that. Or you're a suspicious mm. person. Again, your wife is sick and uh, and you uh, lost your company, but you also have a criminal record, etc., etc. So uh, each person has a bit, a bit of a different background story and also a different uh, character. So the suspicious person looks suspicious and the decent person looks decent. And then in that narrative, uh, uh, you go along and suddenly you find a magic wand. And uh, once you have the magic wand, you think, oh, maybe I could make a wish. And so you get the choice if you want to uh, cure your wife from the disease. And uh, you do that. And then suddenly, right after that, something terrible happens in the world. So you're like, okay, I use the magic wand, my wife is cured, uh, and something terrible happens in the world. And then you get the choice again to use the magic wand, but this time to bring your business back. Uh, so in this story, you're still forced to, to make that choice, so you get your money, and uh, again, you notice that something terrible happens in the world. So at that point, you should realize every time you use the magic wand, something terrible happens in the world. And then yeah. you get another option to use the magic wand, and then the option is provided to you. Will you continue to use the magic wand, knowing that something terrible happens in the world? 
or will you stop using the one? And what happened is that uh, in the experiment, it uh, shows that if people are controlling the decent person, that uh, they stop at different points in the game. But if they are controlling the suspicious person, then most of them go all the way till the end, till the whole world is gone. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> so, so whoa! Yeah. Oh my goodness! So, so this kind of like shows <laughs> the, the the problems and that you need to be aware of if you do this kind of research, as, as you mentioned and pointed out, which is uh, related to the the idea of avatar identification. So, how do you relate to your avatar? How do you project yourself onto the avatar? So, yeah, you do need to be very careful about that. But there's been also plenty of research that shows that uh, people mostly behave similarly in uh, virtual environments as they do in the real world. And we should also keep in mind that most of our interactions are digital. And uh, a lot of research that is happening in, the, in what we consider the real world, how real is that really? Uh, if you put people in, an, in a physical lab environment and you give them a paper and pencil task where they have to do something without any goal, uh, is that considered reality? Uh, you can also question question that. Uh, so each research method yeah, has yeah, their, their disadvantages and, and, uh, and advantages. Hmm. Well, yeah, like that's, that's really like an interesting, like, that popped in my head, an interesting catch-22 potentially is that, like, would you consider, like, with games, maybe they invite that a more, a different level of engagement or an empathy, uh, but you also have to consider um, how it affects decision-making. That's really interesting about um, digital experiences kind of uh, being similar across the board and not being that different from reality, you know? Yeah. 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 I've never thought about testing socialized behavior like that. that that's that's really cool. Yeah. And, and the, the other thing, I mean, this is, of course, part of the research that we're trying to do is to see, you know, at what points do we need to be more careful in terms of making, you know, generalized statements towards the real world, such as with these avatars? Uh, and at what points does it do work? Because we, we also ran another experiment where um, we tried to replicate an experiment where um, it involves real money. Uh, in, in, in the real experiment. So if you have to provide real money that you own, there's a consequence to your action because you lose your dollars that you have to spend. So in this experiment, uh, you have to buy a boat. And uh, we are also using money, but it's virtual money. And so our thinking was, uh, if we have virtual money, uh, people don't really care about that because it's they know it's a short experiment. And uh, we just give that that money, but they realize... You know, in five or ten minutes, I'm out of this, so I don't really care about that. So we thought about including another consequence, and the consequence that we included into this experiment was uh, time. So you had to make a trade-off between time and the amount of money it took to buy the boat. So if you bought a boat uh, with a particular amount of money, then you had to wait an X amount of time. And uh, it turned out that people are so driven by money that they don't really care about time at all. Uh, and this might show also certain aspects of, of reality because maybe we actually underestimate time in our life uh, and you had to wait like 10 or 15 seconds. Uh, and it doesn't seem a lot, but once you actually have to wait 10 or 15 seconds and you can't really do anything at all, it, it's actually a pretty long time. And so uh, we try to uh, 
multiply by 10 all the times that we included in the experiment. And still people were choosing money over time all the time. Uh, and so this, this kind of shows that even in these virtual environments where money doesn't mean anything, there's no relevance to it. Because in some games, obviously, money does have value because you can buy items with it. Uh, but in this experiment, there was really no relevance uh, whatsoever. And still people are very inclined to mm. think about money as important. Mm. So what are some of the... Um more surprising reactions and results you've encountered? Like, does anything like really pop up at you that you didn't anticipate going in? Yeah, so one, one, one thing, I mean, I, I could rationalize that later, uh, but I, I had, uh, um, a while ago, I created an, uh, a project that was, because I'm originally from the Netherlands, and I, one of the big games that I worked on uh, was a game about levy protection. And uh, so in the Netherlands, there's, uh, all kinds of levees which are artificial or natural barriers that protect the land from flooding. And we created a game where people walk around these levees to try to inspect them to see um, if there's anything wrong with them to make sure that uh, that they can prevent flooding from happening. And uh, one of the interesting things was that at some point I saw people uh, doing, like when they played a number of scenarios, I suddenly saw people uh, estimate problems much more severe than they actually were and I also saw that people were um, indicate because they had to report failures and so they had to indicate how long um, for instance a crack was uh, what type of crack they were looking at and at some point I also saw that people were reporting things that actually were happening in the future and and so I was thinking to myself huh. what's really going on here uh, and what really happened was they had played the game so many times already, so they knew that what, what was going to happen in the future, uh, because these failures, uh, they change over time, uh, but they've played the game so much uh, already that they were able to uh, mentally model or simulate what would be happening in the future and start reporting how the future condition would look like. Um, and then with regards to reporting more severe situations when they were looking at the same failure, it was because there was a more severe situation happening close to it, which influenced uh, the observations they were making. And so these are all kind of cognitive biases that we're all already aware of, but uh, to me they were surprising at the time that I, that I saw that it would happen. And it also made me realize wow. that games are a really good ground and, and um, environment to, to study decision making hmm. wow so you mentioned before uh that you wanted to see it move more into reality like where do you see the future of uh, of these uh, experiences um do you see next steps for them yeah uh well in, in different directions i see one uh, interesting venue is obviously with with vr and especially alternate reality games uh, where we can blur uh, playing games and, and reality a lot more. Uh, so there's a, a really interesting venue for that um, where you know, you're at work and suddenly you get a message on your phone uh, that you have to respond to uh, and that might produce more realistic behaviors or more interesting behaviors. Uh, and especially with you know, citizen science and crowdsourcing, uh, what I'm hoping for is that we can actually scale up research a lot more uh, than we've currently been doing uh, because right now we're still 
just like what has happened in the, the past decades is we create an experiment. We invite some people to, to participate uh, and you might get 100, 200 people participating, uh, but you're not able to really scale up the research and making really uh, complex studies uh, with thousands of participants. And I, I know a lot of researchers have tried to, to do that, so it's definitely very hard to accomplish, such as this vision of when Second Life was a big thing, um, there was this vision of let's create a virtual world where we can all study what people are doing and uh, and it's really hard to accomplish anything like that. But I'm still hopeful that we can scale up um, research uh, through the use of games in that kind of way. Let's go. Have you seen any uh, intriguing or successful examples of studies that involve VR or AR? Uh, in, 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 the, in the sense of uh, decision-making? Or just general, yeah. In the sense of this, yeah, decision making, uh, creating kind of, well, I, I would imagine real world scenarios where you can like, um, I don't know, glean data about like behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm I'm working on one myself right now, <laughs> but uh, we we haven't oh, we awesome. haven't deployed it uh, yet. So we're working on a uh, project where we're creating an alternate reality game to study. Um, uh, adaptability in teams uh, and right now we we're uh, there's a, a business simulation game that has been implemented in in um, in a lot of school environments which is not a truly alternate reality game in a sense that uh, you're really walking outside in the physical environment uh, you're mostly uh, inputting decisions on the computer uh, and this is a market simulation uh, type of environment is called the marketplace life and um, uh, and a lot of business students are, are playing that, and so we're so you do uh, meet with your group and discuss kind of decisions you need to make, and then you insert the decisions into the simulation. So we've been studying that, uh, but based on um, uh, based on those experiences and insights, we're building our own truly alternate reality game that we're hoping to uh, to implement uh, this spring, and we are looking to see. If we can see if people how people adapt themselves to in certain situations. So let's say, uh, and that that happens in the in the marketplace life simulation as well. At some point, new products are introduced. So how do you adjust your your marketing strategy, um, or how do you adjust your business plans? Uh, but in our case, uh, we are we're thinking about you know smaller puzzles, where suddenly in the middle of the puzzle, um, your goals change. Or um, another team member is added to the to the puzzle, or you you need to go to a new location. And how do people respond to uh, to these uncertain or new situations that arise? Wow, wow! I think I'd be uh, really bad at that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's this is like a, that was really awesome. Uh, I don't know. Did you have any more uh, questions, Satchel? You know what I'm kind of curious to know? Maybe there there is or isn't an answer to this. This all depends on if you've been looking for it, obviously. But in your research, have you ever um, – do, do you find that people are more or less inclined to um, to operate out of their, their true worldview when they're kind of playing like a simulation game that involves uh, – involves, uh, 
like decision making like decision making like do you find people are more inclined to uh have a fake self that they're completely aware is a fake self in game or 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 to actually use their own personal decision making mechanisms yeah so my my experience is and and you know i i have this is actually an area that i want to study a bit more um study a bit more but my experience and what i've seen is that it really depends what the game is used for and it really depends on who the person is some people really like to try out different selves i mean we all have different selves and ideas of how we need to act in particular situations and see some people are more playful and inclined to to try out something to experiment so i think it depends on the person but it also depends on the on its use so when I talked about the um, the levy patroller game, the levy inspection game, uh, I played that with people who are actually doing this kind of work. Some of them are volunteers, some of them are professionals, and they were really taking it very serious. In part because they were judging themselves on it as well, and so they were very serious when they were engaging with this uh, type of environment. And this has been typically the uh, uh, what I've been observing when it comes to these games for impact or, or serious games or whatever you want to call them, uh, because people feel mostly inclined to, to do well and they understand the seriousness of it. Um, I was I implemented once a, um, a simulation game in, in my class, and the simulation game was called Shark World, where, where you're basically uh, in charge of project managing uh, the creation of a shark aquarium in China. And uh, my, my engineering students, they, uh, they were taking it so serious that even funny aspects in the game, they found really frustrating. At some point in the game, there's a, a shark that explodes. And my, and my <laughs> students were furious uh, because they, they came to me as like, that's impossible. Sharks can't explode. And, uh, and, it, to, me, <laughs> and to me, it kind of shows that uh, these players take it so serious. They want to do very well. Um, it doesn't mean that some people aren't playful, um, and and one of the things that you know might happen and would be interesting to see is if people are more playful when they play it for the second time or the third time. Uh, but most in my in my experience, is mostly people take it very serious, and to that extent also because people know games are about competence, about winning, scoring, performing well. At least most games are, and um, and. To that extent, I also see, for instance, that CEOs or, or people who are in charge of something are a little bit reluctant to, to play a game because they know that they're being judged. Oh, mm. that's odd. Yeah, that's I can see that happening. Odd, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it, is, it has, and that's sort of like this really interesting uh, paradox, right, where you know games are these safe, safe environments where, you know, come out, try and play uh do something else than what you normally do. And at the same time, there's this tension of, you know, I'm being judged and I need to perform well. Um, and, you know, this is something serious. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I yeah. definitely feel like I, if I'm playing a certain game and someone's looking over my shoulder, if I, mm-hmm. like, say, if I was playing a totally different game, but like Grand, uh, Grand Theft Auto, I will start like not being as crazy in the game if someone's watching me because then I feel like I'm getting judged. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so Matt and I we were having a, we we had a little bit of a discussion before we uh, before we talked with you about 
um, about the, the respective decisions that we made in Telltale. And like, you know, he was asking me like when you kind of make a decision and you find out that someone important in the story will remember it. Um, or you're not really sure if like the payoff or the consequence is going to come out right away. Do you regret it? And my answer was kind of like, not really. Like there was a time where I really did care about doing the right thing. And then I think over time I started Mm -hmm. categorizing decision-making games as games that don't particularly have a win state, like almost like the win state it should be. Well, I don't want to say it should be because it can be whatever people want, but like it, to me, it almost seems like the win state is the fact that I made my decision and I made my decision based on the information that was presented to me. And if I didn't have it, then it's my loss in the same way that it is in the real world. Um, but I, I'm curious to know if you feel like, I mean, maybe there is a win state. Like, to, if I, if I, I don't know, if I turn a console off, like, there's a win state to my job, I guess. Like, there's a win state to a lot of things. I, I don't know. Have you thought about that at all? Do you, do you have anything to, to speak to with that? So, so you were saying that that at some point you feel like the win state is going away when you're playing games and you're you're just curious to see what the outcome of it, regardless of it making you better or progressing? Yeah, like almost like the almost like the, the win state is whatever the outcome is based on what I believe is my authentic decision mm-hmm. versus, I don't know, versus trying to be the archetype of a hero or trying to please the entire party or like things like that. Yeah, so I think there are, there are a couple of things to that. So so one one is that actually it's really interesting to to know like in a lot of game good games there are, there are trade offs to be made where it's really unclear if going left or going right is necessarily the best decision, which is what the Telltale games do a really good job of. Uh, so at some point you may also realize that that it uh, that whatever decision you're making that. Uh, that there's not necessarily like a clear yes or no. At least that's the feeling I had with the Telltale. So there's also like this uh, implicit understanding as you're playing this game that uh, that the decisions you're making are not necessarily impacting um, or, or doesn't really impact the game as such. I mean, you, you go potentially through a different branch, uh, but there's that mechanism happening as well. Um, and... Um, I also think that uh, uh, with regards to, to these decisions, this perception of, of uh, you experiencing the game, I think that's uh, that's also what the goal, of, what eventually this game is about from my perspective. I know, uh, and this is maybe slightly related, but I know there was a lot of discussions around these Telltale games that people were complaining about the fact that uh, eventually all the stories... Uh, come together in the end so your decisions really don't matter at all so why am i making these decisions right, uh, right. and to, uh, to to that i answer always well uh you have gone through a different process in the game because every time you were going to make a decision you still had some thought about why you made particular decisions so your experience of the story is different i mean everybody ends at the same place but how you've experienced the entire uh, game is quite different and the way that you that's make the decisions really is quite different yeah and so yeah. and so i think that's what's going on with you and that's also how i experienced the game i mean when i finished the game you know i didn't really had this feeling that they um 
that I did this magic trick on me and betrayed me because it doesn't all it doesn't really matter. I actually exp- uh, appreciate the, the fact that this game kind of forced me to really think about you know some of these decisions. Although at some point there is sort of this implicit understanding that you know my decisions may not really matter in the end, or that uh, whatever decision is offered to me, uh, they're both you know it's a trade off. There there's it's not there's not a good or bad decision basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's about the journey. Yeah. I think. <laughs> uh, but yeah. yeah. Um, like this was a uh, super interesting, uh, is there anything uh, you'd like to add? No. Uh, yeah. Thank you for, for inviting me. This is, uh, this has been something I've been working on for, for quite some time. So I'm happy to, to share that with a, with a wider audience. And, um, and you know, if people are interested, uh, we're, we're uh, about to launch somewhere somewhere in the next couple of months, uh, the StudyCrafter platform, so people can play some of our projects and, and continue to and actually contribute to this type of research. Yeah, where can they go for uh, uh, more of that? Yeah, so we're, we're building up. Uh, the website is not entirely ready, but uh, there is a website called studycrafter.com, and uh, you, you spell it S-T-U-D-Y, and then crafter, C-R-A-F-T-E-R, and then dot com. Uh, that's where, that's where uh, all the games and and uh, the platform will be. Um, you are also able to to download or use the online editor to create your own gamified research projects. Oh, nice, awesome. Well, yeah, that's we really, tremendous. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you talking to us. Yeah, this is great. Been super yeah, informative. Thanks for inviting me. Yep, no problem. Take care. Cool. All right. Bye. Up next, Paul Tassi and Eric Kane discuss EA's plan for 2018 and the importance of pushing back BioWare's new game, Anthem, to next year. But first, a quick break. Support for the Forbes Overworld podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your tenth, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Mini bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Hi, I'm Eric Kane. And I'm Paul Tassi. We're going to talk about Electronic Arts. Uh, they just released their uh, quarter four quarterly report, earnings report, and uh, there's some news in there. Uh, what, what kind of stands out to you? Um, that the main story is kind of that despite missing expectations in Battlefront 2, which sold, I, I think, $7 million on an $8 million, esti- or on an $8 million sale estimate, 
their stock is still going up. All investors still seem pretty happy with their overall growth, especially in digital. And in the end, kind of the protests and all the drama and everything hasn't really hit them very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess it's easy to see kind of uh, the the backlash against Star Wars Battlefront 2 and the, the pay-to-win loot boxes and the, the changes that EA made as kind of a big victory. But in the end, I guess most people who buy games like this aren't really online li- listening to the to the uh, outrage and to the backlash and all that. They're just buying a Star Wars game. Yeah, and I think we kind of get trapped in these little bubbles online where like, oh, well, if everyone on Reddit is mad about this, then surely. <laughs> Which, I, I don't know, like certainly Battlefront 2 is, has not been like a good story for EA and I, I think they will take steps in future to alter that. Because like, if they didn't care at all, they would have just left the loot boxes up and just, <laughs> you know, let the outrage keep rolling. But right. in the end, it it was essentially one component of one game. And EA is, is more than just kind of one title. And, like, you know, they're still just making buckets and buckets of money from stuff like FIFA Ultimate Team and things like that. Right. So, so long as they're still kind of supported like that, it is extremely hard to hit their bottom line like even that that was one of the biggest kind of outrage things i've seen in at least a couple years and you know missing the rest of it by a million is not great but it's not a disaster either so i mean it is on 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 the one hand it is sort of still a disaster i mean seven million versus eight million a million copies of a 60 dollar game plus all the you know the you know the the collector's editions and everything else that is a chunk of change i mean there's no denying that that's that's not a good thing for ea but but yeah i, I think that you know while well the, the backlash may not have really hit the bottom line i do think that publishers are smart when they look at the the trends on reddit the trends in the gaming community uh if if a lot of people are upset that may not sink the game but it may be a sign of things to come you know, uh, if enough people are upset by this kind of loot box, it's very possible that that will there, there will be ripple effects into the larger gaming community. Even the less engaged part of the gaming community may start to get turned off by that kind of thing. So I think it's still smart for a company like EA to to read the writing on the wall, even if it is the vocal minority. I agree, and I, I think it. I think the vocal minority should still be speaking up on this because we've already kind of heard at least kind of whispers that this really freaked everyone out, including EA. And now when Anthem comes along, it's possible the outrage from Battlefront 2 may translate into a better or possibly even non-existent loot box, you know, situation for Anthem, like compared to what it, it might have been if there was no pushback and if everyone just kind of accepted these loot boxes at face value. So even if you're not like sinking a company or something, which I don't even want, like I don't want EA to like go under and everyone to lose their jobs and stuff. No, it's just... Not. You're still doing kind of important stuff by by shaping how these kind of microtransactions evolve and play out and to some degree are, are being scaled back. And they, they said in the call that they will be adding back some sort of microtransactions to Battlefront in the next couple of months. But, I mean, that's going to be, what, six, seven, eight months after launch? So that's yeah. hardly <laughs> a huge deal compared to, compared to what it was before. So And it'll just it, depend on what those look like. And I, I have to assume that they're going to be cosmetic. I, do, I don't see any other way <laughs> forward. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, that would the timeline would make sense if they have their their art teams and everyone working alongside Disney to come up with acceptable aesthetic items, cosmetic items for you know the different heroes and units. Uh, you know, a six month turnaround sounds reasonable. Um, you know, and I also I would say this about EA learning its lessons. You know, we do see you know another item in this earnings report is the uh, the push of Anthem back into 2019. Uh, originally people thought Anthem might come out in, you know, they, they had said 2018. So we were thinking, you know, holiday 2018, but, uh, I think that EA is looking at Titanfall two in 2016, which launched one week before call of duty, infinite warfare, and one week after battlefield one and just got drowned out, just completely drowned out by these bigger competitors. So I think it's, I think that's a lesson that EA has learned pushing Anthem back, delaying it to, uh, to a better release slot. And I hope that that they've learned the same lesson about these loot boxes. Yeah, I agree. And the Anthem news, I mean, I, everyone expected that. And yeah. I read the really stupid headline from, like, Market Watch or somewhere where they were like, EA releases Anthem not to please gamers, but to please investors. And it's like, gamers don't care. Like, gamers don't care if a game is delayed <laughs> for three oh, no. months out of a super crowded window. Like, I'd say most people welcome that. And in this day and age, when we see all these games launching with just massive game-breaking bugs and stuff, like giving a game three to six months or whatever it needs to kind of polish things is is perfectly acceptable. And I, I think most people, at least most people who play a lot of games, are pretty tired of the fall window being like, oh, here's three enormous releases a week, every week for <laughs> two months. Yeah. And I, I think more games need to come out in kind of the spring-summer window. So I, I'm happy to see it released then. And really, this is... This is for the investors because they're still getting it out before the end of the fiscal year. <laughs> yeah. If it was delayed another three months, the investors would get really mad, but gamers probably wouldn't care. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if that's accurate. I think some gamers are probably mad because some gamers are mad about anything. <laughs> you know, well, like <laughs> you know, if, if, there's, if there's a if there's a game delay that's you know you know yeah you're the worst you know go die and all that you know but uh yeah i think a lot of gamers are are very happy that something is getting a little more time to be polished up getting a better window um i still think that the january and july windows maybe even june all the j months could use more game releases basically january (laughs) is that like if you're going to release it in january you might as well release it in december (laughs) You know what yeah. I mean? Because yeah, it's, December's it's pretty so close to the holiday, you might as well just make it work. But yes, that does there was literally nothing that came out this month except essentially Monster Hunter and <laughs> Well and Dragon Ball, but yeah, and those were both oh, yeah. at the very end of the month. Right, yeah, I yeah, mean that's so true, that although happen. gift cards, you know, Christmas is a time of gift cards, and then you get to take that gift card, you go buy the game you've been wanting in January. I just think there's a there's still a, a place for it in the bigger scheme of things. But uh, but anytime after that crowded, like late October, early November, uh, you know, especially with first person shooters or, or any kind of shooter, really, because you're, you're always going to have the big EA game. You're always going to have the big Activision game. Uh, and then and then usually you're, you're going to have something like an Assassin's Creed or, you know, one of these other big uh, annual semi annual releases and, and then all the other games around there. It's just a crazy time. So I think it's really smart. That, that EA did that. Um, they also announced that they were going to have their new Battlefield game in, release in October, which I think is pretty standard for Battlefield. Yeah, that's, I mean, they're alternating Battlefield and Battlefront. Right. I mean, do you, do you have a theory about what it'll be? <laughs> you know, I, th- I don't know if it's a theory or if it's a 
wish, but I, I'm I, I would think Viet, another Vietnam uh, would be great. Bad another company. battle, or you, you're thinking Bad Company? Yeah, I I mean I think Bad Company, but <laughs> I, I guess it's just hard to say. I don't know. Um, I, I, that that would make sense. Yeah, I I would be curious. I could see them doing a Vietnam game, but then I can also see Call of Duty doing like a Black Ops Four set in Vietnam too. Which would be kind right. of hilarious if they both kind of aped each other. <laughs> it would, it, it would, it would be like the ultimate in in just watching gamers talk about how you know one or the other is so much better, and obviously the yeah, battlefield that, would. Right? Yeah, it would just. Um, when when was the last bad company game? Um, that is a good question. I have to look that up. In a while, bad right? Bad Company Two was. 2010. Okay, so not I guess eight years. That's yeah. That's about that's the right time. Enough. Yeah, that's that. That would that. make sense. Um, uh, and you can kind of, yeah. So that, that that would be my main theory. I guess we'll we'll see if it pans out. But I I would imagine they're going to kind of stick with what's been working. And Battlefront Battlefield uh, One was such a big success. They're gonna yeah. they're going to just keep doing boots on the ground and like what they're good at. So I don't know if it'll be <laughs> anything terribly exciting or interesting, but it'll probably be a pretty solid battlefield game <laughs> how do you make a sequel to battlefield one what do you call that mm, battlefield 1a <laughs> 1a 1b yeah <laughs> battlefield one two switch <laughs> <laughs> yeah battlefield one was a huge success and it was a good game i i am still just one of those people who doesn't ever really get that into the battlefield games i just i don't know if i if what it is or i just don't really like the huge scale fights so much yeah that's kind of uh, why i avoided battlefront also it's just, just yeah. the whole just like yay frostbite engine like huge enormous team fighters i just i don't really like how those feel and like yeah with so with so many other great shooter options out there between call of duty or destiny or halo or like you know pretty much any fps i would rank personally above <laughs> which <laughs> yeah might be that's biased, but that's just but like I, but I I also really like all you know most Bioware stuff and I love Mass Effect and Dragon Age and you know all the stuff they make so I'm not like an anti EA games person I just don't particularly like their shooters and the fact that they're using Frostbite to make all their games Ugh, is a not terrible ideal decision. and it seems to be making everything a lot harder so yeah I'm, I'm worried about what Anthem will feel like running like in in Frostbite and built from that so. We'll I feel I feel like the big problem with Frostbite and and like role playing games has been the fact that it's really designed around first person shooters and it doesn't it just didn't have any of the tools or systems available for developers like Bio, BioWare Montreal for Andromeda or Andromeda I always want to say that wrong Andromeda uh, it just it looks like Andromeda but I know it's Andromeda but you know um, but I just I feel like there's just this there's it's it just hasn't been set up for that and over you know now that we've had that that mass effect game and dragon age inquisition that the that the engine is sort of catching up with the kind of games that these developers are trying to make and it's just they've been essentially playing catch up for years now with it you know eventually i could see like it evolving into an engine that works and maybe we'll see that with with anthem are you looking forward to anthem what what are your thoughts on that i am because it's it's right in my wheelhouse of you know, I'm I'm a big loot shooter person, or just looters in general, which is why I'm into Destiny and the Division, and then outside of those, you know, Diablo, and now I'm getting really into Monster Hunter too. And um, so Anthem is is kind of I'm hoping that it can build on all the stuff that's come before it and kind of learn lessons, so it doesn't have to kind of retread 
through all the mistakes that pretty much all of these games made <laughs> and had to spend months and years correcting. And I, I'm hoping that for once they can get a lot of things right at the outset, but kind of the nature of the genre makes you have to kind of just listen to player feedback and figure out what's working and what's not after launch. It's really hard to do all of that before launch. So I will predict something of a rocky launch because that's just how these games launch. <laughs> but um, I, I, I am looking forward to it. And if they can have combat that... I really like the combat in Andromeda. I thought they ended up doing a pretty solid third-person combat uh, job with that after years of Mass Effect combat being just completely terrible. Uh, so if it's somewhat like that, and, and maybe they can have a good story, which certainly games a game like Destiny doesn't, <laughs> and that would be Bioware's strength, I, I would hope that that could all combine into something... That's that's really fun and worth playing, and even if it's a bit late to the party. Yeah, yeah. Bioware's strength is definitely story. That's that's kind of the interesting, weird thing about this game, honestly, uh, because it's you know if it's if it's kind of trying to shoot for that Destiny game as service, uh, living game genre, like that's that kind of goes against the idea of of a good story. You know, a good story that you play through, like you know, a Mass Effect game, where you play from beginning, middle, and end. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how they actually. Uh, end up end up making that work. I mean, I know they've done like that. I'd say the models maybe, yeah, is is the Old Republic where that's an MMO and like you're not really a central hero or whatever, but they they were able to at least develop a number of interesting storylines in that game, you know, whether they were individual quests or kind of arcs or or whatever. So I I think they can do it and I think they have some experience doing that. I, I am curious to see how it translates to a completely new IP that they essentially have to build from the ground up, which I've always maintained that an Anthem just should have been the next Mass Effect game. <laughs> like, you yeah. already have this universe that everybody loves and everybody knows. Like, sure, just open it up, make it open world, make it a live service game, but keep Mass Effect? Like, I, it seems weird to just abandon that series when that was, like, one of the best, kind of most realized video game worlds in existence, and now it's on ice and they're just doing a, t- a totally new IP. That's always struck me as, as strange. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's a, a good and a bad to that. Uh, you know, you, you always want developers to try new things and to spread their wings a bit and not just get stuck in one series or a couple of different, se- you know, you know, it's, it's kind of like with Bungie leaving Halo behind and trying destiny, you know, that's, it, it, on the one I'm hand, like, that was the right it, yeah. On the one hand, it's it's kind of disappointing. On the other hand, they've yeah. made a game that can be played on on PlayStation as well as Xbox. They've you know they've created another universe, and and, and there's been a lot of mistakes along the way. But I I think it would it would be sort of sad at the same time if Bungie just always stuck with. Well, I, I guess like this is similar to what I've said in the past too. Like I could also have just seen a Destiny that was like it's I it's, I agree it's great they want multi platform and stuff, but like I could see a Destiny that was instead of Guardians, you're Spartans and you right. have an <laughs> entire crew of Spartans and you're fighting you know the races and they evolve in new ways and, and gameplay fundamentally changes a lot and like there's loot and stuff now, but you would have at least it would it would have been a way to evolve Halo as a series. Mm-hmm while retaining the IP and a lot of what made that game great. And so why hasn't Microsoft done that yet? Why haven't they come out with a Halo that, that mirrors Destiny? <laughs> it seems like the perfect thing for Microsoft to do, much more than like Sea of Thieves. I think they're too afraid. I think they're too afraid to make Gears and Halo, especially with the new people handling them. Like They're just trying to recapture the magic of the old games and like yeah. make sure that they're as faithful to the old games as they can without 
really going outside the box too much. But the problem is all those games came out, you know, a decade ago, <laughs> and it's it's time to, you know, kind of spread your wings. So they could do that, but I, I don't know if they'd be good at it, and I don't know if they're going to take that risk. So <laughs> Is Bungie good at it? I mean, <laughs> looking at this, we talked about this last week, Lately. the state of Destiny 2. Is... <laughs> Generally, I'd say yes, but I, I still, I, they've had trouble establishing Destiny as kind of a universe is like an iconic universe in the same way I think Halo or Mass Effect established themselves. Yeah. I, they're working on it and it could still improve. But and, and that is the trick, as you said, with Anthem. It's that, you know, they're, ta- they're leaving a really well-established universe with Mass Effect behind and they're striking out into something new. And, and I, I guess it really just so much depends on how they do that. I do feel like there's this sense that all their eggs are in that basket. Like every single one of BioWare's <laughs> eggs is in that that Anthem basket and they have to get it right. And so I, I get the sense that they're just really, really, really working hard to get it right. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they are. And I do not envy them because that's, that's a tough position to be in, but yeah, you know, that's kind of where they find themselves after Andromeda and kind of Dragon Age petering out. But, I mean, it, it, it's Andromeda was this, was the sacrificial uh, victim of, of Anthem, I feel like. Yeah, they, no, it was because most of Bioware was <laughs> starting to work on Anthem, but and that that's really a shame. I think you know, I really, I really do find myself kind of upset with Bioware and EA for doing that because there was no reason that they had to let that game that that game fall victim to kind of being rushed and unfinished the way that they yeah, that did. That game needed like six more months, and it would have been fine, and we well, would have avoided all the memes and like yeah. everything and. It needed and more it's TLC. Really fundamentally, not a bad game. It's a good game. Like yeah. it's, it's. Pre- I mean, maybe I'm a Mass Effect fanboy, but it may not be <laughs> like the original trilogy. But like that was a pretty solid game, and it just got essentially like memed to death <laughs> right at launch. And then yeah. when it fixed itself, it was it was too late. So I I don't know. I always feel feel bad about that one. Yeah, it's it really it's. You know, honestly, it's one of those games where you almost think maybe a year earlier they should have just canceled it because it sort of tarnished the reputation of the of the franchise and sort of dug Bioware and even deeper into the sort of their their bad reputation with with the gaming community these days. Dragon Age Inquisition is a tricky one because that game we yeah. got a lot of Game of the Year <laughs> awards, got a lot of very good feedback, but ultimately I found it just to be such a disappointment compared to Origins, which was such a wonderful game. I will I will compare that game to Avatar, where the year it was released, everyone was like, oh, Avatar is the best movie, and it's getting nominated for stuff, and it's breaking records, and everybody loves Avatar. And then, like, six months later, everyone's like, what? What's Avatar? Like, <laughs> it just it doesn't make... And looking back, you're like, that movie was kind of dumb. Yeah. And well, but the difference... watching it, it's like, uh... But, the difference is that Avatar actually did some kind of extraordinary things with its production and its 3d and dragon age inquisition was just kind of like it just feels really flat like really insight it's a infinitely worse version of the witcher 3 (laughs) (laughs) yeah well yeah that's that's for sure you know what i don't like is I, i don't like yeah i just don't like how repetitive everything was in that game and and how i don't know they it just it just it wasn't a bad game it just wasn't a very good game either i mean they wouldn't the last good Bioware game. What would you say that is? Um, pers- I mean, I consider Andromeda good. Like, once they fixed it, I would consider that good. Okay. The last okay. great one, I would probably say 
Mass Effect Three. I mean, mi- minus obviously the ending controversy and all that. But right. that was a that was a great game. It really it was. was. A great game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, minus the ending, which you know, selfishly has been great for us. Yeah, that that we got that, turned, start. <laughs> that really turned Forbes Playing games about into the Mass a thing. Effect ending. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> Those were the days, boy. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I guess Anthem to me is, pro- I mean, right now is one of my kind of big question marks, but I am really excited for it at the same time. I I don't know. Like, I hope it's I hope it's something that solo players can enjoy. That's what I really hope because. I really, you know, when you, when I think of Bioware games, I think of playing my own adventure, you know? I'm Commander Shepard, or I'm, uh, you know, the hero of Dragon Age, or, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm playing this big solo, interesting story, and that's what I think of with Bioware. And I really hope, my biggest concern is that they, they create a game where you have to go out with other people to enjoy it, and I don't, I don't want that. I, I do um, think it's. I do think we're not going to be able to avoid co-op. Like obviously, even just from the initial trailer, I I, I do hope that trailer. there's a lot to do solo. My wish is that they avoid PvP entirely. Yeah, I hope there that's... was no P- PvP in this game. Do you like, not Mass like the had PvP? multiplayer, but it was co-op, and like Destiny and the Division are constantly hamstrung by PvP because they can't make like super super cool gear because it'll mess up balance. Yeah. And I just I want them to just do PvE like Borderlands or like Diablo and just be able to go really nuts with the gear and that would well, give them a leg up over their competition. They could easily implement a, I mean all kinds of games have implemented PvP that's just completely walled off from the main game. I mean even like MMOs like uh uh what am I thinking of? Was it is it Guild Wars? No, not. Yeah, Guild Wars too. They they have a PvP mode where you just have PvP gear in it. Yep, and that is the obvious solution. That's a really easy I, solution. I mean, many people have, have yet to implement. So, <laughs> I guess if they could do that, I don't know. I just I I would be fine with just it not existing entirely because there's so many PvP shooters already. We don't need well, answering to be another PvP shooter, and they can still monetize and still make money from from just PvE stuff. Also, so I re- I really just kind of hope they avoid that. You know what else though? I would. I really hope they don't do loot boxes or micro. Like, I. You know what? So I really don't like the Good fact luck. that in, in games, well, in games where like part like like let's look at Destiny too. One of the one of the big points in the Destiny games is cosmetically enhancing your character, right? And yet, co- like cosmetics are are part a big part of the loot boxes, and this sort of it, this sort of thing I imagine is a big part of Anthem is cosmetically enhancing your character. Well, as soon as that stuff's in a in a, in a uh, loot box, it it fundamentally changes the nature of the game to such a degree. I mean, it's not like Overwatch, where the point of the game is really you're not looking, you're not out getting loot, you're not running missions, you're just shooting each other. You don't even see your character except for on the victory screen. So I just feel like this kind of game, assuming we know what the kind of game Anthem is going to be, really suffers from from cosmetics and loot boxes. I think it really de- really defeats the point a lot of in a lot of ways. I agree, and that has been clearly evidenced by Destiny. Um yeah. the is doing it okay where they did put loot boxes in eventually, but there was like so much stuff in that game and so much stuff to earn on your own and it's still pretty easy to earn the cosmetic stuff in game reliably that it's kind of okay there, but the problem becomes like in this day and age when you have to monetize stuff, it's literally like just selling DLC every couple of months or once a year or something is, is not enough. So 
if they don't do that, I, I, I don't know what else they can sell besides starting to get into, like, crazy mobile territory, like wait timers or, or like something old school, like a subscription model, which I can't imagine anyone no. would attempt in this day and age. Yeah. But, well, they don't have to monetize that much. That's what my, that's my I, belief. I, <laughs> fundamentally. No, like the game does not benefit from that. It's just, you know, they're going to try. So how are they going to try? Well, here's <laughs> my that's, philosophy. That's question. EA and Bioware needed need Anthem to become a franchise if they want it to be successful in the long run and they should not sacrifice its potential as a franchise on the short-term thinking that loot boxes and, and the, the short-term monetary gains from loot boxes are the way to do that. That's, that's my personal point. At, at the very least, it shouldn't launch with any of that. That's like, for sure. <laughs> Destiny and the division both didn't launch with loot boxes and didn't really Destiny really didn't ramp up loot boxes fully until maybe like year two or three. And by by doing that and by just selling DLC, there wasn't there were no controversies and you never felt like you were lacking, you know, loot to find because everything was in the game. And yeah. so at the very least, with the bare minimum is to not launch with a loot box system. I don't know if EA will be able to restrain themselves. <laughs> uh <laughs> But that, that is my fundamental advice for them to, to establish a community. All right. Well, that's our that's our take on Anthem and, and EA going forward into 2018. Um, I, I think that EA is a hard one to predict because they seem to waver between making some very smart choices and making some very stupid, greedy choices. And I, I don't know. I guess we'll just I guess we'll just have to see. Anyways. Yep. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next week. See you. That's it for this episode of World. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drinks. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast1. That's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L. And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care. Podcast One has new shows on our new app. Check out all the cool features to help you explore our exciting new programming, like America's Lakers podcast with Jay Moore, So Random with Corinne Olympios, Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast, Not Just Sports with Susie Schuster and Rich Eisen, and Sessions with Randy Jackson, as well as your old favorites like The Lady Gang, Steve Austin, Shaquille O'Neal, and Adam Carolla. Get the new Podcast One app in the App Store, Google Play, or PodcastOne.com. At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying. And the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. 
We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.